It is good, isn't it, to be able to gather together in a place like this one with the comforts of the hours we've been given and with the character and disposition of mind and health that permits us to come and to enjoy the handiwork of God both in His creation physically and also in His creation spiritually. For indeed, we are His handiwork in a spiritual fashion, each one of us being the children of God by faith in the sense that we've been baptized indeed into His Son, Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. As we come together tonight, you may have noted in the bulletin that the title of the lesson this evening, as well as on the wall to my left, is indeed the danger of suspicious minds. And isn't it interesting that as one gives thought to the characteristics which can be expressed in the human frame, one of them is in fact the matter of suspicion. Noticing the element on this slide, I chose to begin it with a note of joy. Because isn't it amazing that in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1, we're reminded, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's reading through the second verse of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. And among that, we noted that there was a marvelous joy which our Savior endured as He went to the cross. Sometimes the way of our life too can be hard, but I pray and trust we each too can find the joy that may be found within it and that we may be able to emerge in a victorious way. And in so doing, I thought it wise for us to consider for a few moments the matter of suspicion tonight the suspicion and the danger that goes with such a mind as that one. One of the characteristics that can be expressed so freely in the human frame is that of suspicion. And for the next few moments this evening, I would invite us to consider what good things can be said about suspicion, but also to note in its due time the destructiveness and the harmfulness that can also be expressed and that can be a consequence of the expression of suspicion. It is with that in mind that we come to the lesson text this evening that was read for us a moment ago from the 10th chapter of 2 Samuel. I would invite you to revisit that chapter with me for the next few moments as we first of all pay due course to the setting of the text and then try to extract some lessons indeed from it. We won't read the entirety of the second chapter or the, the 10th chapter of 2 Samuel. But let me, in fact, remind you of some of the scenes as they take place in that chapter, and then we will strive to extract a few valiant lessons from them. One of the nations that we so quickly read about in this chapter is the nation of Ammon. It was a nation that so often arrayed itself against the children of Israel. It was a nation that, in fact, came out of the loins of Lot back in Genesis, the 19th chapter. As we read about, though, its occurrence in the Old Testament, more than once these people were the enemies of God's people. They strove to, in fact, hurt them, to harm them, to make their cause difficult. When we arrive at this chapter, we find the following interesting scene. The king, at the, as the time the chapter opens, the king of Ammon, was a man named Nahash. He had, was one who, in some former time, had shown kindness to David. We are not told the details of what that event was and the manner in which Nahash had expressed kindness. But the text informs us in verses 1 and 2 that such had taken place at some point in the past, and David remembered that kindness. 
The time came when Nahash died. His son, as so often was the case in that ancient era, his son assumed the throne and began to reign over Ammon. His son's name was Hanan. We immediately learned the following thing. David had a desire to express kindness to Haman, to Hanan, I should say, on the occasion of his father's passing. And so he sent messengers to the nation of Ammon to express his condolences and to express sympathy on the occasion of the passing of Nahash, Hanan's father. That to you and me seems like such an appropriate thing. It seems like a good thing. It seems like a valiant thing to express one's sincerity and kindness in the event of a loss in another person's family. However, the episode takes a rather notable turn for the worse. Because on the occasion of the coming of those servants, the princes of Ammon began to ask questions. And they asked questions again in verse number 3. Would you read that verse again with me? And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? These princes of Ammon, whether they truly believed it or not, planted in the mind of Hanan suspicion. Do you really believe that David has sent messengers? That he really has sent servants to comfort you? Do you really think he cares about you? Hanan, he has sent those people to spy out the land so that he may conquer it and so that he may overthrow it immediately planted in then the mind of Hanan was this issue of suspicion. And in fact, Hanan acted on that suspicion. Read with me the next verse, if you would, verse number 4 in 2 Samuel, the 10th chapter. Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. Immediately we notice that the following comments are in order. Hanan chose to shamefully treat these servants of David. As you noted, he shaved off their beards, and for a Jew that was unthinkable. For a Jewish male to have his beard removed was in fact an incredibly great act of disgust, a great act of shame, a great act of mistreatment. And as if that weren't enough, he proceeded to tear or in fact shred their garments to the point where even their buttocks was exposed. Again, for a Jew in public, such was unthinkable. We gained some measure of just how difficult that was, and in fact, just how shameful that was, by looking at Isaiah 15, 2, as well as Isaiah 20, verses 4 through 6. In both those instances, the element of exposing the buttocks, as well as losing the beard, to a Jew was an absolute statement publicly of shame, of inappropriateness, and in fact, of greatness with regard to the inter interior shame that one was feeling. For all those reasons, we now see that Hanan had chosen to act very suspiciously of those servants and had treated them in this fashion. You'll notice with me in the next verse, when David got word of what had happened, he gave commandment that those servants of his would not come back to Jerusalem, but rather that they would come to Jericho and wait there until their beards be regrown. They did not need to be seen publicly in their current condition. 
it is with that in mind I would invite you to notice that isn't the end of the story. And it isn't the end of the record because if we were to summarize that which follows, here is how it plays out before us. You'll notice that upon this great statement of mistreatment, the Ammonites came to realize that David looked upon them with a degree of great disgust. If I may use the words of 1 Chronicles 19.6, they recognized that they were odious in David's sight. What they had done, they came to realize they ought not have treated the servants that way. They ought not to have been suspicious. They ought not to have been one to question the earnestness and ardency of David in sending these servants. But once they became to realize that David now looked upon them with a great deal of displeasure and disgust, they proceeded to try to protect themselves because they feared David would now bring the armies of Israel and fight against them. And so they used a thousand talents of silver to purchase 33,000 soldiers to fight on their behalf. 33,000 soldiers were enlisted to fight on behalf of these Ammonites. These soldiers were from Tob, from Syria, and from Aramea. As you notice what came about after it, indeed, David sent the servants. He sent the armies to fight against them. This scene played out just as fearfully as the Ammonites perhaps expected that it would. When David sent the fighting men, we now recognize that the armies of Israel were in fact such that they had to fight from both the front and the back. The Ammonites fought from the front. These hired soldiers fought against Israel from the back. We recognize quickly that the hired soldiers fled. And after that, the Ammonites did too. The children of Israel were victorious. And if we were to think that's the end of the story, we still haven't reached it because once the Syrians recognized that their troops had been beaten and that they had been defeated and that they fled before the face of the children of Israel, they were sufficiently displeasured by that fact that they proceeded to engage Israel in war again. And so as you can see near the bottom of that slide, David, in fact, again sent the soldiers to fight against the Syrians. And when that happened, 700 chariot drivers were slain, as well as 40,000 Syrian troops. I think now we've reached where at least a point of observation is in order. Look at what destruction and look at what harm came about because of suspicion. The loss of 40,000 lives the loss of 7,000 chariot drivers, not to mention potentially the chariots. And furthermore, all the great deal of mental anguish, mental harm, and mental difficulty that came about because of some suspicion. It is with that story in mind, and an inspired story at that, that might we ask, what are some lessons that might benefit us as we think about suspicion today, the role that it can play, and the potential characteristics that it brings. First of all, this lesson seems in order initially. Perhaps the most obvious matter to this point has been this one. We have just seen that David, in full integrity and with simple desire to express condolence, comfort, and sympathy to this man called Hanan, nonetheless, suspicion on his part has led to such a great note of destruction. Isn't it true that indeed suspicion can bring about harm 
it can bring about that which is not good. It can bring about, in essence, that which is destructive. You and I often perhaps have been on the receiving end of suspicion. Maybe we, in fact, have been in a position when someone has asked, is he saying things because he really means it? Or is he just saying something because he's expecting something back from me? Maybe you've experienced that as well, where someone questions your sincerity. Or perhaps whether you have been in position to question someone else's sincerity. Suspicion. That's the subject of our lesson this evening. As you can see from that opening slide, we in part have been led to a point in life in which it's almost natural to be suspicious, isn't it? How often have you and I been faced with a television commercial that, quite frankly, is too good to be true? For something to supposedly do what that is supposed to do for the cheapness of what's being asked for, it simply cannot be that way. There is some catch. There is something that they are not saying up front. No wonder we have become cynical. With respect to advertisements and with respect to products, we seem to be naturally ingrained at this point to be suspicious, aren't we? I would invite us to notice, though, that perhaps suspicion with regard to a product advertised on TV is one thing. Suspicion with respect to people in general might perhaps be different. It is safe to say, isn't it, that a life that is based only on suspicion is a life that's both unhappy and miserable. If one always second guesses everything else that everyone does and everything that they say, it is a very unhappy existence, isn't it? Thankfully, in the family, in your family and in mine, we don't operate on suspicion. We operate more on love and tenderness and in trustworthiness and reliability one to the other. But we do know that in this world, suspicion has its place. And we do know in this world that suspicion even is set forth in the Bible, and we shall look at some passages in just a moment this evening. Perhaps at this point it is worthy to comment that when suspicion does raise itself, isn't it true that it leads to a dearth of fellowship? It leads to a severing of association. If you are suspicious of somebody, you don't have a natural tendency to want to be with them very much because you don't trust them. That's true for me, and I know it's true for each other person too. In fact, isn't it true from Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. When someone has acted in a harmful way toward us, we naturally have suspicions about them for times in the future, do we not? No wonder we're told in 1 Corinthians 15.33 statements that read like this. When Paul warned the Corinthians and when he admonished them to think very carefully, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. When we have been hurt by someone else because of what they've done or said, though we acted rightly and goodly toward them, and yet they turned it against us and used it to harm us and to belittle us and to insult us, it's hard to forget that. And it's also difficult to learn to trust them again. We're naturally suspicious, perhaps with good reason. As you think about that element of suspicion, holding that thought in mind, let's take it one step further. 
What about suspicion as it appears with regard to those people who are evil? That is to say, those who have acted toward us in a way that simply was beset with evil. It goes without saying that the children of the devil have no love lost for Christians. They simply do not appreciate the Christian way of life. Now they may be ambivalent toward it, or they may in fact simply not care. But at any rate, they have no great love, if you please, for those who have adopted the Christian way of life. In 1 John 3 verse 13 we read, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Inasmuch as Satan is the one behind the instances and affairs of the world, it certainly is easy to appreciate, isn't it, that the children of the devil often can make your life and mine hard because they lie, they steal, they cheat, they misrepresent, they slander, they libel, they are productive of that which is evil. They often bring into your life and mind that which will cause tears to be shed because it saddens us. We never intended to harm them. We never intended to do that which was evil, but yet they took it and twisted it and used it against us. Again, when those who have done us that way, it is natural to have an element of suspicion because they may do it again. And they may again act toward us in a way that will be harmful. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. When Jesus on that occasion gave the marching orders to His disciples as they were shortly to move on to the limited commission, He in fact admonished them to be wise as serpents, but to be harmless as doves. Think with me about the nature of what the Lord said. In the midst of these who will have little appreciation for your message, in the midst of those who will turn a deaf ear to what you preach and proclaim, in the midst of those who may even try to do you physical harm, gentlemen, you be wise as serpents. In other words, you have proper suspicion toward those and do not place yourself in positions whereby they may be with more ease able to harm, that they may with more ease be able to bring to an end your mission. You be wise as serpents, but you do not retaliate. Don't you do to them what they are attempting to do to you. You be harmless as doves. Isn't it interesting that even Jesus was aware that His servants, as they were shortly to move on that limited commission, they would be the brunt of many things that would bring difficulty. As those servants were to act in love, again, they were not to take vengeance nor to retaliate, but they were to, of course, act with wisdom. They were to have a proper suspicion, you see, toward those that were not Christians and toward those that were productive and interested in the accomplishment of evil. Interesting, isn't it, that we also read in Galatians 6 verse 10 about a verse of which these kind of people are not characteristic. Paul on that occasion was able to say, As much as life in you, do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. We know well that we live in a world where not everyone follows that slogan. They are not interested in doing good to all men. They are not interested in striving to lift and uphold and in fact produce that which is noble. They're more interested in serving themselves at your expense and mine. When it thus comes to evil people, 
might I note for us that we have every right to have an element of suspicion and to always act with wisdom so that we do not allow them to hurt and to tarnish and mar the good name that you and I have striven to build by the nature of our association to the cross. In Proverbs 22 verse 1, it is listed for us on that occasion the, the worthiness of a good name. It says there that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor more than silver and gold. Although wealth and riches might be something often pursued by many, a good name is so very valuable and something to be upheld and something to cling to very tightly. As you think with me about this set of comments to this point concerning suspicion, we have looked at that second element, but why don't we come to the third one now for just a moment? What about that suspicion as it may arise with respect to those who are righteous? That is to say, those who are not of that kingdom of the devil. It goes without saying that the example before us this evening in 2 Samuel 10 has been exactly of that consideration, hasn't it? David had a mindset whereby he simply wished to express his sympathies, his condolences, and his comfort to this gentleman called Hanan. And yet from that, Hanan ripped their clothes up to their buttocks, shaved off their beards, treated them so shamefully, and from that, two full-scale wars broke out. Look at the destruction that came from it. And yet all the while, it was so needless. All prompted by needless, inappropriate suspicion. What might be some thoughts that might help us in that regard this evening? Sometimes, you see, suspicion is inappropriate. Sometimes it's productive of much evil and much harm. When a brother or sister in Christ or when someone else who heretofore has done us no harm. We ought to give serious thought. Is it the best order and practice to immediately suspect them? Ought not we, like Christ, give them the benefit of the doubt first? Quite often pride, as it appears in the Scripture, seems to be a matter that lay behind the element of suspicion. Someone else might do something better than I can, so I immediately am suspicious of his plan. I don't want him to gain the notoriety. I prefer to have it. And therefore, I'm suspicious. And I speak evil of him, and I tear down his name, and I act toward him in a way that's inappropriate. Maybe someone at the workplace also has been called upon to offer some suggestion or presentation, but I would rather have done it. And thus, I suspect out of pride, what he or she has done. Suspicion. Quite often that element in suspicion brings such harm, doesn't it? At the work site, how often is it? If two people could only work together in the accomplishment of a goal, but yet one suspects the other, doesn't want the other to gain ahead, and therefore seeks to make much harm and seeks to tear things apart rather than build things up. Such ought not be. Such is inefficient, it's wasteful, and it's prodigal. Would it not be much better if we could realize the error brought about by the suspicion that was wrought upon David's servants? Perhaps another thought along that line would be this one. This needless suspicion, as it appears in passages like this, 
remind us of some of the statements of the Savior in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 37, as our Savior spoke on that occasion, He there was discussing the element of swearing. But as a part of that consideration, He said, Let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay. And even the inspired writer James used that as well in James 5, verses 12 and following. And as he said that, does he not highlight for us our speech should be pure? It ought not be our goal to mislead someone, to say something of them that even though it may not be openly false, it nonetheless casts a shadow upon and seeds perhaps maybe to plant suspicion in the mind of others. That's what Hanan's servants did. The text doesn't say they really believed David's servants to be spies, but they said what they did and it caused Hanan to believe it and look at what happened as a result thereof. We must be cautious about our speech. We may plant doubts, things that are inappropriate in the mind of others, even though it was not in our intent. No wonder our speech should be always with grace, seasoned with salt, Colossians 4, 6, and no wonder our desire ought to be to let our yea be yea and our nay, nay. Not to tell lies, but not to mislead either. It is noteworthy in the light of that consideration that Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 12 verse 9 and said, Let love be without dissimulation. When it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, our expressions of love ought not be flattering in the sense that we purposely say things simply because we want them to assist us in some future way. We need to be genuine. We ought to be real. We ought to be forthright and to say the true feelings of our heart, but do so with kindness and tact. Not to just say what we think they want us to say, and not just to say what we think that they would be more interested in hearing but rather to say that which truly is without dissimulation. That word dissimulation means hypocrisy. It means that which is merely a play actor. It is interesting that when the word hypocrite occurs in the New Testament, and our Savior used it often, didn't He, in Matthew 23, He made reference to what was a common means of entertainment in that ancient day. Today, you and I sometimes go to a theater and watch a movie. Sometimes we may go to a, a, a playhouse and actors on the stage may make out a play before us. The word hypocrite from the original language comes from that kind of idea. Actors on a stage playing a part but not really being that themselves. Jesus warned the Pharisees, You are hypocrites. In fact, seven times in Matthew 23, He called them hypocrites, and He admonished those who were His followers, Don't you be like them! Because after all, they'll tell you one thing, but then they'll do something else. We as Christians ought not be so, but rather in our genuineness, not motivated by suspicion, except in those matters that are appropriate, but motivated rather by purity and by love. In Philippians 4 verse number 8, as Paul drew near the close of the Philippian epistle, it was to them that he simply said, Think on the following list of things. He said, Think on things that are true, and things that are honest, and things that are lovely, and things that are pure, and things that are honest, 
and things that are of good report. And if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, he said, think on these things. If our thoughts are centered on things that are true, then suspicion is not going to be a problematic part of our life. We will, in fact, act in wise suspicion when appropriate, but we won't be promoted and prompted by it all the time. If our thoughts are on things that are honest, we won't be motivated by suspicion in those inappropriate times and ways. No wonder we should strive to have a mindset that is motivated by the truths of the Word of God and when wisdom is needed and when suspicion is appropriate, it will naturally appear. But otherwise, might we be guarded and guided by an element of confidence, expecting to live wholesomely and rightly before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. We do remember, do we not, that Jesus had within Him the power of reading the minds of others. Admittedly, you and I do not have that capability and gift. I'm not able to read what you're thinking right now, and you're not able to read what I'm thinking. But Jesus could, according to John 2, verse 25. Might we pause for a moment and think. Because of that, Jesus didn't have the characteristic need for suspicion as you and I perhaps might. He could read exactly what everyone was thinking. He could read exactly what was on their mind. But yet you and I, based upon their activity, can appreciate this lesson. In Matthew 7, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, By their fruits ye shall know them. When someone has acted in such a way that evil fruit has been brought therefrom, and that fruit has harmed you or me, we have every consideration to behave with suspicion, at least in the short term, toward that individual. But as we give thought to the church to those who haven't acted toward us in that way. May we not be ruled and guided by suspicion, but rather may we be guided by the thought that those individuals, in fact, have professed the similar thing that we have, namely, allegiance to Christ. In conclusion, in summary to tonight's lesson, these matters of suspicion lead me at least to comment in the following way. We looked at a lesson entitled, The Danger of Suspicious Minds. We've looked at three lessons. First of all, as you give thought to the advice Jesus gave to His disciples in Matthew 10, 16, that advice in which again He remarked to them, Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. That only promotes us that last section one more time. Think about the awful scenario that played out both in 1 Chronicles 19 and in 2 Samuel 10, with respect to David and Hanan. It never needed to have been that way, but suspicion prompted it. Today, suspicion can bring about evil as well, and it can bring about such dissociation and harm. As we consider the propriety of it, may we be moved by the thought of that only when it is the right thing. Tonight, to this point, has, has suspicion been something that has caused you to question in one way or another what Jesus did? Don't ever be suspicious of what the Savior accomplished. He died not for Himself, but for you and me. There was not, in fact, anything in Him that was other than loving, nothing in Him that prompted Him to do that out of self-serving glory. He came, according to Mark 10, 45, to be a servant to all. If you'd like to also be a servant of His, that can be accomplished tonight. 
If you've never been baptized into the body of Christ, why not this evening? The baptismal waters are ready. We'd be more than honored to assist in making note of your belief and your repentance. And furthermore, we would be happy to take your confession. If you have done that, if you have engaged in that at some point in your prior life, but at this point you recognize that things are not what they ought to be. Your life is at this point hypocritical. You are not a true servant of the Master. You really are a servant of the devil and you're only pretending to serve Christ. Make a change tonight. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be, in fact, one who is motivated by dissimulation. It may well be that suspicion is a ruling monarch in your life. Maybe you've become suspicious of everyone around you. Maybe you've become suspicious of what they mean, what they say, and how they do it. Let Jesus help you put suspicion in its proper place so that you can be a notable, noteworthy servant in truth and in honesty and sincerity. If tonight we could be of assistance in praying on your behalf for forgiveness of public sins or for strength, we'd be happy to do that. Brother Adam has chosen a song of encouragement. Song 71 is the one we'll sing. And if we could be of help to you, why not come? If you would, while together we stand and while we sing.